So uh, if you're visiting here, particularly the soccer blokes, mate, what a, what a day to turn up at church to hear a text all about immorality and sex and cast out the brother and bonking your mother-in-law. I mean, like, it's just nuts, man. Um, but, but there's a really serious question here, isn't there? Um, uh, how many of you sometimes look at the church, the big church, and go, man, if that's what Christians are like... I'm just kind of ashamed to be one of them, right? Like, just have any of you read what's in the papers yesterday, what's been going on in the Diocese of Newcastle? Anglican Church. Don't you look at that. I mean, if you haven't, if you've, if you, if you haven't read it, uh, and it's pretty close to my heart, man, it, it's just a cesspool of institutional organized evil that went on for at least a generation. And these are people who claim to be Christians, right? Leaders of the church. And they've got an organized ring swapping kids and covering each other up and, you know, and it's rotten from the top down. And you go, if that is the church, like if that's the church, I don't want any part of it. I mean, I don't know if you feel like that. (laughs) And, And if you don't feel like that right now, don't you know people who do? And maybe it comes to you in this way. It's like, well, I don't want to join the church because the church is full of hypocrites. And maybe that's why you only come to church once a year when you're dragged along or once in a lifetime. Because <laughs> the church is full of hypocrites. And you know, underneath that, what that normally means is I or somebody I care for has been really hurt or damaged by the behavior of people who call themselves Christian. Now, this text in 1 Corinthians shows us that, uh, that this is not a new problem. It's not new. We can sometimes think that, that the, the challenges we face are all new. No one's ever experienced this before. And maybe God's up there in heaven looking down on the diocese of Newcastle or some other perversion in the church somewhere. And, you know, I mean, maybe, gosh... Sydney Diocese in the last couple of years, a prominent North Shore businessman goes, you know, discovered that in fact his whole accounting practice and finance management practice is basically money laundering and fraud. And he funded all kinds of good things in the diocese. So maybe God's up in heaven going, oh man, I've never thought about this before. What on, what on earth am I going to do? This is the first time in human history that, that the church has screwed up. Well, no, look right back in, as, um, as Doug said, uh, 1 Corinthians is so contemporary the church in Corinth uh, was in a city just like ours in many ways, uh, a city of um, a young city, a city of people who wanted to make money, a city of people who wanted to get ahead, a, pe- a city of people who thought they were a little more sophisticated and uh, uh, better than the, the pagans in the surrounding si- uh, countryside. And this church had been going a few years. Paul had started it. And um, it didn't take them very long to get into trouble. So here's the problem. Have a look in these verses. Um, There's two problems with this church, right? What's the first problem? Problem number one. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, so the problem number one is uh, the man. Actually, and possibly the father's wife as well, but we won't get into that. So there's a problem, right? What's the second problem, though? The second, yeah, the second problem is the church. 
Let's think a little bit about the two of those. The first problem was a problem not just in the church, but actually uh, all around uh, the ancient world at the time. This kind of relationship was uh, regarded as totally beyond the pale, as completely unacceptable. Pagan philosophers all uh, thought that this kind of behavior was wrong. Uh, now, um, there's a, the scholars tell us there's a, there could be a few things going on there. One is the perhaps uh, inevitable tension that comes from living in close quarters with, a, with, with you know, your hot stepmom. Okay, that could be a problem. And, uh, and, you know, so likely second wife or third wife or fourth wife was a whole lot younger than the dad, possibly even the same age as the son. And living in close quarters in the family, there could be a whole bunch of unresolved sexual tension, um, which unfortunately got resolved, which is never a good thing, right, according to this and according to the philosophers. But there's possibly also a second element in this, the scholars tell us, and that is that uh, it is possible that this man was a, uh, actually married his father's wife in order to gain a bigger share of his father's inheritance or estate. So there is a possibility that it wasn't just about sex. It was also about our second favorite topic, money. And, and so this guy goes, well, the estate's going to be divided up. I can actually, if I, if, if I shack up with my father's wife, I'm going to get a whole lot more money out of the estate. Now, this, now, two things might help us here explain. So that's the first problem. The second problem could explain the church's attitude. Two things going on in the church, the scholars tell us. One is, the church thought, listen, uh, we're all, we don't know a lot about these old Jewish laws the, the, the Torah, the, the, the Ten Commandments, these don't apply to us anymore. We're pagans, we're not Jews, we're followers of Jesus. And not just being followers of Jesus, these, those laws don't apply to us. We're beyond that sort of oppressive, patriarchal limitations being put on us by a bunch of old dead Jews. We're free, right? We're Corinthians. We're sophisticated, we, we have a, you know, a social constructivist epistemology uh, and uh, a view that, that all of reality is just constructed by the, the, the rich and the powerful, and we're beyond all of that in Jesus, right? And so there's a theological justification. But underneath it, guess what? In a small little church like the Corinthians, in a culture where everyone's trying to get ahead, and one of the ways you got ahead was by attaching yourself to rich, powerful people, What's the temptation of the church? I've got a rich, powerful person who brings a lot of status and a lot of advantage to our church. And then he marries his stepmom and he gets even richer. So what are we going to do? You beauty, more money, more opportunity for us to get ahead. So isn't this great? God has blessed us through this man. Isn't it handy that, you know... The Old Testament, God's law, doesn't apply to us either. We're free to do whatever we like to do, right? Isn't that awesome? And Paul goes, no, it's not that awesome, actually. There's a real problem. You have really, 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 really messed up. You're not really free. And that which you thought would bring great blessing to your church is actually going to destroy you. It's actually going to destroy you. You see, um, one of the great fantasies we have is that we can do whatever we like 
and it doesn't, it's never going to have any consequences. Like, I can do whatever I like. I'm free. There's never any downside to our behavior. And actually, the, the history of humankind says moral and ethical boundaries and law are given to us to actually help us not hurt each other. Evil hurts us. It hurts these people. And so uh, what's the solution? Um, well, what's the solution we find um, in verses 7 and 8? He says, look, your boasting uh, is not good. Your boasting is not good. Um, actually, let me just go back here. Hmm. Um, don't you know that a little yeast or leaven leavens the whole batch? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. The solution is this, and I love it. Here's how Paul argues theologically. The solution is this. Be what you are. Okay? Be what you are. Now, I don't know if any of you ever did first-year philosophy at university or read some old texts and read some moral philosophy. This is another way of saying what, the, what in philosophy is, uh, and we used to spend, when I was at university, endless times debating this, uh, is implies what is implies ought oops sorry is implies ought so this is this is how paul argues and develops an, a, a moral imagination or framework for for behavior he says get rid of the old yeast uh, that so so that you may be a new and uh, this is what we are, a new unleavened batch, as you really are. So he's going to say, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. If you're a person of faith, this, and as a result of this, this is how you should act. Your isness shapes your oughtness. Who you are shapes what you should do. And this seems kind of obvious, right? So um, if you're a knife... You're meant to cut things, not uh, fly through the air and, you know, transport goods across the country, right? If you're a cup, you're meant to be a good cup. Your nature as a cup determines what you ought to do. You ought to be a receptacle for fluids. You ought not to be, uh, um, I don't know, a mode of interpersonal communication. You're a cup. This is... This is an incredibly important point in our culture because what does our culture make of this ethical imagination? Don't like it much at all. It, in fact, our culture, and this has been going on for thousands of years, but comes into particular force for us. Our culture says, no, 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 no. Our behavior defines who we are and I can choose whatever I want to do. There is a... There is a um, a massive rebellion against the givenness of life. So I, am, I, I don't want to be constrained by anyone or anything, our world says. And, and, maybe, and, and maybe you believe this, and it's sort of a half-truth. We see this in the area, obviously, and not obviously, you may not be following these debates, but it, it comes through with great force in the area of gender and identity, doesn't it? I'm, I'm not constrained even by my chromosomal or anatomical givenness. If I want to identify as, 
as something else, I am free to do that. And you cannot tell me not to because that would be to oppress me and to deny me a basic human right to define myself. What I do shapes what I am, not the other way around. Now, now the Bible, along with moral philosophers for 2,000 years, have a different vision. And that says who we are shapes what we're meant to do. Is implies ought. As Paul says, be what you are. And what are we? What are we? Uh, We are, uh, very simply, we are a Passover people. And this has enormous implications for our identity. Paul argues here, says, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, your identity is given to you by belonging to God. And you belong to God as people in a particular kind of relationship with God that has been set up by the Passover. Here's, uh, if, if you're not familiar with the story, here's the Passover story. God's people back in Exodus, right back in the start of biblical history, were in slavery in Egypt, having the you know, snot beaten out of them, being oppressed, uh, being killed by uh, the Egyptians. And God comes to rescue them. Okay? And how does that rescue? What's the climax of the rescue of God's people from slavery? Well, an innocent lamb is killed, and the blood of that lamb is painted over the doorposts of all the uh, Israelite houses. And so when the angel of death, of judgment, sweeps over, Israel, over Egypt, all the firstborn uh, are killed except for those who are living under the covering of the blood The innocent blood of this little lamb was a signal to the angel of death, don't kill these people, save them, spare them, and then take them out of Egypt, take them out of slavery, take them out of death and bring them to the promised land. Paul says, and the Bible says, listen, um, we are those people who we are not living under the blood of a lamb, but we're part of that same covenant Passover people, the blood that we live under, as it were, is the death of our Passover lamb, Jesus. So we're made a people of God, not by being good, not by being religious, not by being Jewish or Protestant or Sydney Siders or white or black. We are made this people because we trust Jesus as our Passover lamb. God himself is the one who died for us so that he could actually not kill us but rescue us, bring us out of the mess that we've got ourselves into and make us a new people. And uh, as a result of that, he says, we're now new. And uses this imagery of yeast. Yeast or leaven uh, was used in the ancient world to, as it is today, to make bread rise. And it's a powerful metaphor right back from the Passover through to Jesus' day of the, the influence that a little thing can have in a whole system. And so what would happen is you'd have your leaven, your leavened bread, you'd leave a little bit of side, and then the next week you would take that leavened bread that had the yeast in it, you'd mix it in with all the other dough, and that little bit of leavened bread would rise. 
uh, cause the whole lot to rise. Actually, one of the problems they used to have, and we th- that scholars think this is also behind the metaphor, that little, be- little piece of leavened bread could, could actually also go off. It contained bacteria, as it does, and so you keep it for a week in the, in the desert heat. Uh, you could actually not just cause the next, lot of, the next uh, batch of bread to rise, you could also infect it with harmful bacteria. So leaven could either be unambiguously a good thing or could actually poison everyone who ate it. It could also be a force for ill. Now, what Paul is saying is when you uh, trust Jesus, you become a Passover people, you become a people who are going to leave Egypt behind. You're going to leave captivity to selfishness, to injustice, to death behind and you are, all, that, all that leaven is out. You're now made pure. You're now something new. You're now someone who can live the way Jesus wants you to live, serve the way Jesus wants you to serve. You're transformed and you leave that behind you. And then what he says, let us keep the festival, which is very interesting. Here's what you need to know that, that helps unpack this. This word here, let us keep, is actually a present continuous tense. What does that mean? Well, uh, in Jewish practice today, once a year you celebrate the festival of Passover. You go, okay, now we're going to celebrate what God has done for us. Paul says, if you're actually uh, living with Jesus as your Passover lamb, you're going to live in a continuous state of celebrating and being defined by this Passover festival. You're going to keep on keeping on the festival. So every moment of your life as a follower of Jesus, you're keeping this festival pass, this Passover festival. You're letting it shape you and impact you and define you. Isn't that extraordinary? It's wonderful. And the way you do that, the way you live as a Passover people, is you leave malice and wickedness on one side, and you, you live a life of sincerity and truth, totally transformed, utterly incompatible with sexual immorality, isn't it? He says, you can't, it's, it's unthinkable that if, if you are somebody who, who has left a life of selfishness, of living your own way, of, of, of defining your identity by your sex or your money or your power or your status. And now you've said, yeah, I'm really a mess and I need Jesus to, to die for me, to save me. I can't do it on my own. I'm now living for Jesus. It's unthinkable that you'd keep wanting to live the way you used to be because now God, through his son Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, has made you something different. You live a life of truth and sincerity, right? It's a very hard lesson to learn. We see this actually in the story of the Exodus. The way it's, the, the, the Israelites, I'll give you an idea how dumb they, how, well, how common our struggle is. This is what it's like, right? The Israelites, slaves rescued dramatically, taken by God to the promised land, and on the journey to the promised land, what do the Israelites start to do? Oh, God, you know, I'm just in the desert, and all you're giving me is manna and quail, and, and you're not here for me. And, God, we were so much better off back in Egypt, so much better off. Oh, I want to go back to Egypt. Oh, I want the cucumbers of Egypt. I want the, the pleasure and the security of Egypt. It wasn't that bad in Egypt. Now, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, this is what you as a church are doing. You're going, God, is, in Christ, he's brought you out of a life of unrestrained sexual immorality where everybody did whatever they wanted to do, 
which, by the way, isn't real freedom. When you look back in the history books, it meant the inevitable oppression of the weak and the poor and the vulnerable. So in a world where anything goes in the era of sexuality, what that really means is anything goes on behalf of the powerful. And they inevitably exploit the weak and the vulnerable, which happened in the ancient world all the time. Uh, sex with children was just, particularly poor children, was just rife and accepted. Uh, I mean, it was just, you know, there were no rules about rape in marriage. There were, I mean, women had no, no real rights under law. I mean, it was extraordinary. So, so the, and, and gosh, um, that's not the same at all today, is it? I mean, the sexual freedom that was promised to us in the 1960s in the sexual revolution and the capacity to define ourselves and do whatever we want to do, um, that hasn't ushered in an era of just amazing sex and justice and beauty and human flourishing, has it? (laughs) Has it? Like it's actually ushered in an era where we just see increasingly that the rich and the powerful oppress the poor and the weak. It's just always been the way when, when, when the restraints are removed. It doesn't bring life. Egypt is not a place of life. Egypt's a place of death, even though it looks like life. And the Israelites are going, we want to go back to Egypt. The Corinthians were going, we want to be able to live just however we want to live, back in the land of death and self-determination. And Paul says, no, you're in Christ. You're in a new place. You're on the way to the promised land. You and I go, oh, we want to live just like everybody else. I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's actually the path of death and has no place in the church. I mean, that's tough, you know, to restrain ourselves, restrain our desires, submit to God. But that's the path of life. That's the journey of being a Passover people, right? It's a kind of, so what does that look like? Um, practically, uh, is implies ought. If we are, and, and for a moment now I'm going to talk to those of us who who are kind of in the church, who belong. And if you're visiting or you're checking it out, just listen in and see what you might be getting yourself into and then choose to get in or get out quickly, run screaming down Darling Street to the nearest coffee shop. That's fine, but which is okay because you, you need to think about this, right? We all need to. Um, he says, this is what we should do. I, write, I wrote to you in my letter, do not associate with sexually immoral people. have nothing to do with them. But associate doesn't mean just, you know, have a cup of coffee, shake hands. It means involve them in your life, tolerate them, accept them, welcome them into your community life. Wouldn't the Diocese of Newcastle have been different if someone had read this verse and taken it seriously? Hey? Wouldn't the Roman Catholic Church in, around the world have been different if people had taken this seriously? Wouldn't so many of our churches be different if we'd actually taken this seriously? You know, we can't just pretend that evil doesn't exist. There are high standards, and there needs to be discipline. And um, uh, I love this. Some of you laughed, I think, when this was read. Um, He's not saying don't associate with people who aren't in the church, Um, not meaning people of this world who are immoral, greedy, swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Isn't that cool? Like, the world's a mess. We get it. You're a mess, I'm a mess, we're the glory and the garbage of the universe. It's not like you can retreat from the world into a little holy huddle and have nothing to do with unclean people out there because then you'd have to go live on a desert island and you'd have to leave. So we're not into that, Paul says. But, but listen, don't associate, don't embed your life 
with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral, greedy, idolatrous, slanderous, drunken or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Well, uh, some implications of this, and you might feel a little nervous about this. Um, here are some implications. I want to I give you some options around how churches have worked this out in the past. Uh, this can sound a little cult-like, can't it? <laughs> and cults practice this all the time. It's called shunning. You disagree with me, and I'm going to shun you and have nothing to do with you and not speak to you. Uh, cults have a very high level of closeness and control um, and take this sort of teaching uh, and apply it rigorously, but I think somewhat insanely and out of context and becomes very destructive in the end. But at the other end of uh, the cult option is the club option, um, which is really we're just a voluntary association and we meet for odd services and then we go home and there's no real bonds of connectedness. Um, And, you know... It's like the bowling club, right? You go to the bowling club, no one's going to ask you who you're bonking. Don't care. Just come, bowl, get on with it. You're fine. Do your thing. No one's going to want to see a tax return. No one's going to challenge you if you're a gossip. You know, they'll just avoid you. Just just come, bowl, and go. And uh, so these are the two continue that we often find in the church, right? Church is a voluntary association, Newcastle Diocese, Anglican Church, often in the developed world. This is what we're like. We come, we sit here. You don't get close enough to anyone for them to really ask you how you're doing. Your life is not transparent before people. You're not accountable. You do what you want to do. You consume some religious goods and services, and then you go home and you live your life. On the other hand, you, we could be a cult, right? It was a, in, in Melbourne, where we lived for many years, there was a church, uh, there was a, a group within churches that then ended up centering on a couple of churches that became very cult-like. They took passages like this and thought, we've really got to disciple each other very zealously. We've got to be accountable and transparent to each other. Grew out of a 1970s movement that historians have called the sort of over-discipling movement. And uh, what happened in this church... Uh, bunch of rich, influential people in Melbourne decided that uh, they're they, they zealous for God and, and the key thing that was missing in the church was holiness. So we've got to be accountable and interdependent and we've got to confess our sins. So this is how it worked out. There was a guy down there uh, ran one of Australia's most successful stockbroking firms and he employed a bunch of people in his business and uh, we ended up with a bunch of these people in our church. So these are how I know the stories and they're, they're on public record, you know, there's nothing, I'm not gossiping in any way about this. It's all out there. So this fellow would have a bunch of guys working for him in his office, and they'd all go to this, be part of this little group. And, um, and then he'd give them a lift into work. You'd have three of his senior managers in the business that he ran who were also in his little group and accountable to him. And on the, way into, on the way into work, they'd be driving along, and he'd say to them, okay, so now we'd go around the car, and everyone would get to confess their sin to him. He wouldn't confess his sin because he was further up the tree. Or confess your sin. And then he'd give them a stern talking to them. Then they'd go into work and they'd do their work. And then he'd give them a lift home from work. And what do you think they'd have to do on the way home from work? Well, everyone have to confess their sin. And then, you know, so every day this is going on. And then it, it got even more extreme because then you couldn't just, you didn't have to just confess your sin. You couldn't make any decision without asking the guy who was discipling you. So, oh, I'm thinking of wanting to date Matilda. And you'd have to go and tell you, you'd have to go and ask your boss, can I date Matilda? And then, and then the, all the elders would get together. No, we don't sense the Lord is in this relationship. Crazy business, right? Question. Is there a way 
between not being a voluntary association where we all just do whatever we like, a club, or being a cult? Is there an alternative? Let's pray. No, no. <laughs> there is. Uh, and uh, I, I'll say it, I think it is. There's a Passover. It's that Passover covenant community. Okay. Which actually is going to have some elements that on the surface might look a little cult-like and some elements that might look a little club-like, but actually is bigger and better than both. So a, a covenant community is going to have accountability. The point, and again, study this in your, small, in your Bible study groups through the week. When you look at this, we've got to be accountable to each other because the way we behave in our homes and in our workplaces reflects on all of us. Okay, So there has to be mutual accountability. We're not our own to do exactly whatever we want to. Right? What you do with your money, what you do with your genitals, what you do with your power, what you do with your status, what you do with your tongue, this actually affects all of us. Oh, unthinkably confronting for us individualists, but that's how God, that's God's vision for the church, right? Uh, there's going to be accountability. Um, there's got to be a, a passion for purity. The bar, the moral bar is very high for God's people. <laughs> it has to be discipline. You know? In, a, in, a cover, in the Passover community, that's how Paul ends. Expel the immoral brother. When last did that happen in church? And, and it's not punitive in the sense of, I want, not, I want to hurt you, I want to destroy you. It's restorative discipline that says, I want to inflict consequences on you to exclude you from all the blessings of the church so that you can come back to Jesus and realize life in the promised land is better than life in Egypt. Okay? Accountability, purity, discipline. But then there's some club-like things, right? Um, there's grace and freedom. So a covenant community only legislates and holds us accountable to the things that the Bible holds us accountable to. There's no way I can impose or we as a community can, can impose on each other's consciences the things that the Bible doesn't impose on us, like who you should date. Okay, don't date someone you're related to. Or don't marry someone you're related to. Don't marry someone who's married to someone else. Don't marry someone of the opposite gender. Um, you know, don't marry somebody who worships other gods. These are the, the things we can impose on our consciences. But beyond that, you want to marry a really old person or a young person or a white person or a black person or someone that I find annoying, feel free. You're the one who's got to marry them and live with them. I don't. There's, there's freedom. Uh, there's real freedom. You, you know, you want to vote Greens, you vote Greens. You want to vote Liberal, you vote Liberal. You don't want to vote, you don't vote. You want to be a, you know, hardcore anarchist, you be that. You want to be a Marxist. Like the Bible doesn't speak to those things. So there's freedom. You want to drink alcohol, you drink. You want to not drink, you don't drink. There's freedom. You know, it's liberating, right? 
So, but you've got to understand what are the things that the Bible, what's the, 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 the moral contours the Bible sets out and what's that we get for And then there's grace. And grace, we find that in the Passover community that grace says, you know what? Each and every one of us is only here because Jesus died for us. So we never hold each other accountable from a position of moral superiority. Well, I'm better than you. I'm in because I've got my shit together and you don't. We're never in that. We're always on the level playing field. We always come in through the blood of Jesus because we're all a mess. We're all screwed up. But we're all on the journey to the promised land. So what is, what is asked of us is not perfection, but it's an ongoing fight in the pursuit of purity and holiness from a place of grace where I go, yeah, yeah I know. I mean, there, there is evil in the church and it shouldn't surprise me and there's evil in me and it shouldn't surprise me. That's why we need a Passover lamb. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need Jesus. I do, you do. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, oh my goodness, you need Jesus every bit as much as I do. Every bit as much as anyone here does. So friends, um, here's the question for us to think about, right? Is here in Sydney in 2016, how do we live this out? How do we live this out? Because it's going to be challenging, right? But understanding our identity, living a life of purity, of discipline, of accountability, of grace and freedom actually sets us up to be a blessing to this city. I'll give you just a quick example, then I'm going to finish. I find it, I don't know if you've been following the story of these um, enterprising young perverts in in our high schools who've been setting up websites, set up a website. I mean, they're very clever, right? And then sharing photos of, of all the girls that they've in their schools and so on. I mean, very enterprising, very clever, and, and really broken. Our culture is trying to figure out, what do we, you know, oh my goodness, what do we do with these teenage boys, you know? So one school lectures the girls on wearing longer skirts and managing their, you know, their, their, their looks. And then the other school goes, well, the way to answer it is to... Um, <laughs> is to teach, is to have lectures on online security and, you know, how to manage your behavior, how to use technology well. Well, the kids have already proved they're smarter than their school's IT administrators, and anyone with a teenager will know that that's true. What our society can't do is find a way to change the sexual character of young men, and old men, by the way. It just doesn't have the resources. So you imply external sanction or technology or education, and then you throw your hands up and you go, why is this not working? Oh, my goodness. It's because, because we actually aren't building young men and women who are part of a Passover community who've been made new. God's vision, God's plan for us is to restore us from the inside out. And the church in this world that is so confused and messed up, has the opportunity to live out in front of the world what it is to be a community of redeemed, grace-filled, healed, restored sexual character. And we'll talk more about that next week. That's the, Next week's all about sex, 1 Corinthians and the body. And that, what a blessing it is to our city and our culture to say, there's a better way. There's a better way. 
to bring blessing and renewal to the city, and it comes from this identity and this understanding. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for this text of Scripture. Thank you for all its challenges. Uh, I pray that whatever I might have said that is unhelpful or untrue will fall away and have no impact on us. But where you have used my words to, to bring your word into our lives in a true and powerful way, may those words really change us, each and every one of us, so that we, together with you, can build our little church to be this kind of Passover community full of accountability, purity, discipline, grace, and freedom. And we ask this in your great name, Lord, and for the blessing of this wonderful, wonderful city of Sydney. Amen.